Tonight's scripture comes from Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake, while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables, and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places, where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly, because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered, because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, multiplying thirty, sixty, or even a hundred times. Then Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, thirty, sixty, or even a hundred times what was sown. This is God's word. The German poet Rilke once went to a museum and spent quite a bit of time being dazzled by a statue of Apollos, an ancient statue of Apollos. And when he went home, he wrote in his diary, I must change my life. He didn't write down, wow, that was a great aesthetic experience, though it was. What he was really trying to say in the diary, and then he wrote a poem and used the same, uh, he wrote a poem with the same phrase in it, What he's trying to say is anything that actually touches you, anything that really moves you, any great insight you ever get, any experience of beauty that really, really gets you at your center, always makes you aware of the fact that you're just a shadow of what you ought to be. It's a shadow of what you know you should be. We all know when we're sober, we've got to change. We're so far from what we ought to be. Now, Jesus Christ, in this passage, tells us how he can change your life. And he says, I can change your life if you recognize that my gospel, my word, the basic message of what I came to do, is a seed. And if you receive it as a seed and understand it as a seed, that will change your life. 
Now, why does Jesus Christ liken his, his gospel, his word, his basic message about who he is and what he came to do to a seed? Three reasons. He likens the gospel to a seed because it has power. He likens his gospel word to a seed, secondly, because of how it releases that power. And thirdly, he likens the gospel word to a seed because its weakness is the secret of its power. The gospel word is likened to a seed because it has power, because of the way in which it releases its power, and because its weakness is the secret of its power. Let's look at these three, these three ideas, these three uh, implications of this metaphor, because that's what will change your life. First, first we learn from this that the uh, word of God, the gospel, the basic message of who Jesus is and what he came to do, is like a seed because it has power. Now, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. In the beginning of the Bible, we see God creating with his word. He says, let there be light. And it doesn't say, he doesn't say, let there be light and then go do something to make light. He says, let there be light. And there was light because God's word creates. It, 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 it is, it's a word of power. It immediately, uh, it, it immediately affects what it expresses. But we also know from the Bible that, that God's word has not just got creative power, it's got recreative power. And so there are two passages in James and in 1 Peter that uh, completely track with what Jesus says here about the gospel word being like a seed. So in James chapter 1, we read, He chose to give us new birth through the word of truth. So humbly accept the word planted in you, which is able to save you. And 1 Peter 1 says, You have been born again. Wow, there's that phrase. Not by perishable seed, but by an imperishable seed, namely the living and enduring word of God. Now, what Jesus is saying here, what James and Peter are saying, is that the word of God, the gospel, of course, has information. I mean, it's, it's words, therefore there's content, there's information. But it's, it's not less than information, but it's more. It's a power. It's like a seed. And when a seed comes in, it releases that power. If you take um, glass, metal, or stones and plant them, in the ground and water them and fertilize them. You can save a lot of time. Don't do it because they can't grow. They don't have the power of life in them. They don't have the power of biological life in them. Well, when we talk about the seed, the word of God being a seed, what Jesus is trying to say is that that has got the power. It's seed because it has the power of spiritual life. The very life of God comes into you through your understanding of the word, your understanding of the gospel. It has the power to come into you and release the very life of God in you. Otherwise, you don't have it, which brings up a question. Now, is the Bible here saying that we're dead? Huh? If the Bible says this is how you get life, is the Bible saying we're dead? And the answer is, well, it depends how you look at it, because there's three, let's think of these. We know that there are orders of life. There's plant, there's animal, there's human life. And there are three orders of life. And I don't want to disrespect any of them, but think about this. Plants are really alive. But if an animal, through some kind of injury, is brought back to the level of a plant and can't see or hear or move, uh, at the animal level, that's not living. <laughs> and animals are alive. But if a human being, through some kind of injury would be brought back to the level of an animal so that that human being couldn't think or reason. At the human level, that's not 
really living. And why? Because each order of, of life, we can call them three orders of life, different orders of life, because each one sees more of reality. That's why each one is, in a sense, a higher order, sees more of reality. Plants have sensation. They can sense light and that sort of thing and moisture, etc. But plants cannot see objects just inches away from them that animals can. On the other hand, animals can see all sorts of things, and they have the five senses, but they can't discern the difference between cruelty and justice. They can't discern the difference between right and wrong. They can't sense certain realities that we human beings know are there. So each one sees more and more of reality. So what is Jesus saying? When he says, when the Bible says that the word of God comes in and brings you eternal life, it's a... It is actually saying that the Word of God has the ability to initiate you into a higher order of life, spiritual life. Now, let me be careful. The anal- this is only an analogy. Uh, and we certainly, there's nothing in the Bible that says that a person who gets that spiritual life becomes a higher order of being than other humans. And at that point, the, the analogy breaks down. As a matter of fact, you can make every case to say that if that spiritual life really explodes in you, if the seed really has its way in you, you are more than ever engaged with the rest of your co-human beings. But in this sense, it is a higher order of life, and that is you see a reality that you've never seen before. You know, Hamlet says, there are more things in heaven and earth that are dreamt of in your philosophy. And the spiritual life comes into you and actually shows you all kinds of things, all kinds of things that are really there that you never saw before, that no one, that others can't see who haven't gotten that power. I mean, you know, if you... What am I talking about? The holiness of God, the Father's love, heaven and hell, the future resurrection, the hope of the future resurrection. Before you get this life in you, you either... Don't believe in those things at all. They're just nonsense to you. Or you may have believed in them. In fact, all of your life you may have believed in them, but they're just theoretical abstractions, and they aren't real. But when the, when, when the power of God comes in, when this life comes into you, and you are initiated into a whole new order of life, what happens is, is that these things, these, these things become real, solid, vivid, controlling, affecting, melt-in-your-mouth-sweet, you know, Reality. So, for example, most people in this country say they believe in God. They believe in a God of power. They believe in a God of goodness. But when you get in trouble, real trouble, is the wisdom of God, is the power of God, is the goodness of God such a reality that you can actually fortify yourself against the trouble? Or do you just freak out? See, you're just going to freak out, even if you may have the theoretical belief that there is a God and he's a you know, good God and all that sort of thing. But when troubles come at you, See, will you just freak out? You will just flip out, freak out, because those things aren't real to you if you haven't received the word into yourself and been initiated in this whole new order of life. It's amazing. Or if you failed, really badly failed, badly, and you've, um, uh, or, or you've, you're experiencing devastating criticism. All right, now, most people probably believe in a God of love. But is the Father's love of you in Christ, is his delight in you, is, his, uh, uh, is, it, is the applause of God, the accolades of God, is, is God's delight of you in Christ more real to you than the criticism? Is it, is it sweet 
Is it powerful? Is it glorious? Is it beautiful? Does it affect you? Is it real to you? If if it's real to you, you can handle anything because you have been initiated into a higher order of life. But if not, if it's it's just the idea of God's love is just abstraction, you're just back with everybody else. Has this happened to you? And if the seed, the word of God, the gospel comes in not just as information but a power and begins to release its power in you and initiates you into this new order of life, you can tell that's what's happened because you will change, but it's organic growth, not mechanical growth. It's organic growth, not mechanical growth. What do I mean? Well, over and over again, we've said, because the early chapters of the book of Mark, uh, in the early chapters of the book of Mark, Jesus is constantly in uh, conflict with religion. He's here to abolish religion. And we said, religion is, I obey, therefore, God accepts me. And now he owes me. The gospel is, God accepts me and and accepts me through Jesus, through radical grace of Jesus. Therefore, now I want to obey. Now, see, religion and the gospel will both produce change, will they not? Oh, absolutely. But one will produce mechanically and one organically. So, for example, what do I mean by mechanically? Well, imagine there's a pile of bricks here. Can we grow that pile of bricks? Sure. Throw more bricks on. Grow, grow, grow. But is that organic growth? And what religion will do, it will change you mechanically. You've got many things to do, and you've got things to learn, doctrines to learn, and, and things to, classes to go to, and busyness, and activities, and performances, and observances, and all sorts of things, and, you know, it grows. But it's mechanical growth. Organic growth is not like a pile of bricks grows through more bricks on it. Mechanical growth is like a bulb growing into a tulip. It's organic. It's from the inside out. It's, it's an organism becoming more and more complex and more rich and more beautiful. And the way you know that you've got organic growth is you're just not getting busier. Instead, you're getting wiser and richer and deeper. Has that happened to you? So you find, on the one hand, yourself getting actually stronger and tougher, and yet at the same time, considerably more feeling and sensitive, or more confident and bold, and at the same time, more humble and, and less, uh, you know, uh, less focused on yourself. If you see, and you're more generous, more able to love people who are different than you, that you in the past couldn't stand, uh, more forgiving. If that's happening to you, that's organic growth, and that is a sign of the power of the Word of God. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. Did you hear that? He didn't say it has power. He didn't say the gospel about what Jesus is and who he is and who, what he came to do. He doesn't say the gospel has power or brings power or results in power. It is a power. It's the power of God in verbal form. And therefore, it's not less than something you get to know and master and listen to and learn. We'll get to that in a second. But it's infinitely more. It's a power. Have you felt that? Has the gospel started working with you in your life as a power instead of just information? Have you felt it dealing with you, coming after you? So first of all, the seed, uh, the, the, the uh, gospel word is likened to a seed because it has life-giving power. Secondly, it's likened to a seed because of the way in which it releases its power. This gospel word releases the life of God in you the way a seed does. And how is that? Well, you can take a look at the analogy. You take a look at the metaphor. The seed releases its power by going in deep. The seeds release their power only if they go in deep. Look at the three soils 
that don't produce the organic growth, they don't actually receive that life-giving power from the seed. What is their problem? The answer is, in every case, it's a depth problem. The first soil doesn't produce any life because the seed doesn't go in at all. The second soil doesn't produce uh, uh, life because it doesn't go in deep enough. And the third seed, interestingly enough, it, the seed goes in deep, but it goes in at the same level of weeds and thorns. Other concerns are just as important as the gospel. In every single case, the gospel doesn't go in deep enough. And, and think of the entire metaphor of, of sowing seeds. There's almost nothing gentler. This isn't, we're not talking about mining. We're not talking about getting out a pickaxe. We're not talking about blasting. You know, so, for example, if you've got a little pot with some soil in it and you want to plant a flower in it, it's the gentlest thing. You just slip that thing in there. You don't get out your pickaxe. You don't drill. You see, you don't get out your nitroglycerin. And, of course, it takes a long time before you even see any change. It's very gradual. What is Jesus saying when he keeps talking about, look, look all through this. He says, hear, understand, listen. Here's what he's saying. In a nutshell, what he's saying is this. The way this incredible power is released in your life, the way in which you get in, you're initiated into a whole new order of life, is by taking the information, the Word of God, the Gospel of God, and listening and thinking and reflecting and discussing and applying over and over and over again. It's working it in, working it in, working it in. The Gospel is not something that does something to you without you. You don't just sit back and pray and say, oh God, come on down and change my life. You work it and you work it and you work it and you work it in through thinking, through listening, through hearing, through understanding, understanding more and understanding more and understanding more and understanding more. Fascinating. And it's gradual and it's sustained. That's how this incredible power is released in your life. Let me give you two illustrations of it. First illustration is from the Bible. Uh, you go to the book of Galatians, and in chapter 2 you see, if, I guess one of the only place in the Bible you see it, two apostles having a fight. Peter and Paul confronting each other, or actually Paul confronting Peter, really. Why? Well, Peter was refusing to eat, was refusing to sit down and eat with Gentile brother and sisters. Why would he refuse to eat with the Gentile brothers and sisters? Because of his training, it was very, very deeply ingrained in him that as a Jew, he looked at Gentiles as an as unclean race. So Paul comes to confront him, and there's a couple ways he could have done it. The one way he could have done it, very, very easily could have done it, is to look at Paul, is to look at Peter and say, Peter, racism is against God's will. Racism is against God's will. And, of course, that's true, and he could have done that. And he couldn't come after Peter like that. But he doesn't, because that would have worked on the will and gotten mechanical change. We'll get back to this in a second. Instead of on the heart, where it got organic change. Here's what Peter, pardon me, here's what Paul actually said. What he actually says in Galatians 2.14 is, Peter... You are not walking in line with the gospel. Do you see what he's saying? He says, Peter, think of the gospel of grace. You were saved by sheer grace. That eliminates superiority. That eliminates racism. Peter, the gospel hasn't gone deep enough yet. It hasn't gone, it's not captured your imagination. It hasn't, it's not controlling your heart. It's not the controlling reality. It hasn't gone deep enough. Work it in, work it in. Think, think, think it out the implications. 
The insecurity that racism always needs to feed off of, the insecurity that racism has got to feed off of, the need to bolster a self-image, is still too much in you, Peter, and you haven't worked the beauty of the glory of grace down deep enough into your heart. He doesn't go after his will. He doesn't hammer on him from the outside. Instead, what he says is, think. Think it out. Push the gospel down till it catches fire and explodes and you get a new life. That is very different than the way religion works. That is very different than the way, honestly, that almost everybody tries to get change in your own life, even in the Christian church. Let me give you another illustration, and it's different, and yet it's just another perspective. And actually, those of you who are artists are immediately going to say, this is applicable to me, and it's true, but I think it's applicable to everybody, but more immediately to artists. Uh, I've been reading a book, uh, a biography of C.S. Lewis by Alan Jacobs. It's one of the reasons why I'm using even more C.S. Lewis uh, quotes and examples than usual, but don't worry, I'll, get, I'll be reading other things. Uh, but meanwhile, this is great. When people ca- uh, would write C.S. Lewis and say, oh, you wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, fiction, you're a Christian artist, how wonderful. How did you do it? And he wrote back this, which I think is remarkable. He says, some people think that I began by asking myself, how could I say something about Christianity to children? And then I fixed on fairy tales as an instrument to do it. And then I collected information about child psychology and decided which age group I'd write for. And then I drew up a list of basic Christian truths and hammered out symbols to embody them. What moonshine. I couldn't write like that. And then he says, don't ask, you artists, don't ask, what do children or readers want? Don't even ask, what do children or readers need? It's better not to ask those questions at all. Never start with a moral and then try to come up with a story. Rather, let the images and stories that come into your mind and move you tell you their own moral. And here's the kicker. For the moral inherent in them will rise from whatever spiritual roots you have succeeded in striking during the whole course of your life. For the moral inherent in them will rise from whatever spiritual roots you have succeeded in striking during the whole course of your life. That's brilliant and fascinating and exactly what we're trying to get across here. Here's what he's trying to say. Don't you dare say, here's the morals I want to get across. Let's find some stories to get them across. Here are the Christian truths. Now I'm going to come up with stories or or works of art that are going to get them across. He says, "How that's going to be terrible art. It's going to be awful. It's going to be sanctimonious. It's going to be pedantic. It's going to be terrible. Instead, he says, have you worked the gospel, O Christian artist, down to the roots of your life? Every aspect of that, Christian, that gospel narrative, that resurrection, death always leads to resurrection, that incarnation leads to redemption of creation, the gospel, the dance of the Trinity, the, the dance of joy, have every feature of the gospel story sunk so deep into the very roots of your life that then the images that come to you, the stories that come to you, that move you, simply bubble up out of that. See what he's saying? Then you've got, in other words, instead of starting with Christian principles and coming up with art that gets it across, you work the gospel down deep into your heart and then the art that comes up will be Christian. It'll it'll be better. It'll be deep. And you know, Alan Jacobs, who... um, is an, is an English professor and therefore is a writer and a poet himself, says that, that in the biography he, he, he brings this, this line out and he says that's one of the most terrifying things a Christian artist could ever see. 
Because have we, as Christians, really worked the gospel down into the roots of our lives so that we can trust our imaginations, so we can trust our instincts? This isn't just true of artists. This is true of entrepreneurs. This is true of everybody. Have you worked it down so deep that you can trust your instincts? That's how it gives life. It's a seed. It's got to go all the way to the roots. And you have to keep working it and working it and working it in. And the more you do, the deeper it goes, the more of the life comes. So first of all, the gospel word is likened to a seed because it has the power. Secondly, it's likened to a seed because of the way in which it releases its power by going deep. But thirdly, thirdly, it's likened to a seed because its weakness, the gospel's weakness, is its power. What do we mean by that? I want you to think about the image that Jesus has chosen for the word of God, for the gospel. He doesn't choose, even though, by the way, he could because these are used in the Old Testament. He doesn't choose an image of the word of God as a hammer. He doesn't choose the image of the word of God as a fire. He doesn't choose the image of the word of God as a sword. Hmm? A seed. And a seed is weak. A little thing. You know? You, know, you, don't, you, don't, you don't drop a seed to the ground saying bombs away because... You know, you drop a seed and you can't even find the seed And after you've dropped it. Now look, three out of the four soils reject it. Three out of the four soils reject the power of the word. The first one doesn't let it in at all. The second one is excited about Jesus, you know, but really just wants miracles, really just wants good times, really wants just the needs to be met. And the third, the third group, of course, gets, is very, very concerned about uh, about what the world thinks and about the, the issues of the world and gets choked. In every single case, the people respond to the word with what Gordon Allport, who used to be a very prominent Harvard psychologist, called extrinsic faith, not intrinsic faith. Extrinsic faith is believing, serving God for what you get. Serving God for what he can do for you. Serving God to get things. But intrinsic faith is serving God to get God, serving God for his own sake. And the first three are people who, for various reasons, are not interested in Jesus for who he is, but only what they can get out of him. The first group gets nothing out of him. The second group gets something out of him. The third group gets a, a lot out of him, but at the same time wants to make sure that, that, the, that they're getting worldly uh, approval and worldly status and that sort of thing. And there's only one group that is actually breaking through all that. In fact, the weak... See, Verse 11 and 12 has bothered many people. Uh, it, it seems like Jesus is saying, I'm telling people parables so they don't get it. Now, back in the fall, this is a quote, by the way, out of Isaiah 6. And back in the fall, we've talked about it. But, but in a, let me just briefly say, the best way to read this is this. Jesus is surrounded by people, thronged by people who want miracles, but they don't want him. They're not interested in his message. So what he's saying here is, when I tell parables, it's like a filter. The people who are really interested in me, the people who really want to figure it out, the people who feel the power of the word, the people who, who want to work it in, they come, see verse 10, and say, tell us what this means. The rest of them don't. Nobody even comes and asks. Only some people come and ask. He says, that's the ones I'm trying to, I'm, I'm filtering you out. The others who don't care about me, I tell parables, and they say, oh, well, you know, let's get back to the miracle part of the service. But some people say, what does this mean? What does this mean? But here's the point. Very few do. The seed is so weak. 
It's not a hammer. It's not a fire. See, hammer crushes its opposition. And fire blasts the opposition. See? And, and the sword slashes through the resistance. But the seed seems so weak. Why would Jesus Christ characterize the gospel as something so weak? Though, let's admit, if we think a little bit more about the metaphor, seeds have a paradoxical weakness and strength. Here's an acorn. What's an acorn? Well, on the one hand, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, in that acorn is everything necessary to grow a huge tree. And then out of that tree could come hundreds of other acorns. And out of every one of those trees could come hundreds of every acorns. Do you realize that a single acorn has got the power in it to cover the entire face of the earth in wood? No hammer, no fire, no sword has the power to do that. And yet, you could stick that acorn on the ground and crush it, and it's gone. Power and yet weakness. Or, G. Campbell Morgan tells an interesting story. He was in Italy once, and he went into a graveyard. And this was, some, this was a kind of tourist attraction because there was one very, very old grave, centuries old. And it was some very, either a king or some wealthy man. And there was this enormous, enormous, incredible thick slab of marble over the grave. Huge, thick. Yet an acorn had fallen into the grave. And over the years, somehow, and it took centuries, had grown up and grown up, found a way out of the one side, then got bigger and bigger and bigger, and eventually became this huge tree. And over the centuries, had cracked that marble slab and rolled it off into two pieces. And everybody used to come and see that. Isn't that amazing? An acorn, something that, of course, if you dropped on the slab, never would have done a thing. You can just stamp out like this, and yet if you give it a chance to release its power, it can do something that a team of horses couldn't do. Why does Jesus Christ characterize the word of God, the gospel, as a seed? And here's the reason why. If you're reading the gospel of Mark, up to this point, some people have pointed out, every single, every single soil is somebody's response to Jesus. The first soil is the Pharisees and the religious leaders. They've rejected him. The second soil are the, the crowds. They're happy with him, but as long as he's doing miracles. And the third soil is his family, who's very upset with the, with the fact that they're losing face and the fact of the shame and the fact that they're losing honor because of what he's doing. In other words, the parable of the soils is not just a parable of how people respond to the word, but how people respond to Jesus. And Jesus did not come as a hammer. Jesus did not come as a fire. Jesus did not come as a sword. He came not to judge, but to be judged, not to be strong, but to be weak and to die, because seeds only release their power if they fall into the ground and die. If Jesus had come as a sword, if Jesus had come as a hammer, if Jesus had come as a fire, we would all been dead meat. But Jesus Christ came as the ultimate seed. Because a seed, and he says it himself in John chapter 12, he says, unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed, chapter 12. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before Jesus Christ was to go to the cross, he was facing infinite suffering. He was facing cosmic abandonment. He was going to pay the penalty for our, our sins. And even the foretaste of that even the, even 
even the, the, uh, the hint of it, the foretaste of it, the prospect of it, smote the eternal Son of God to the ground in such shock that blood came out of his pores. And he looks up to heaven and says, is there any other way? And the answer of heaven is, my life cannot be released into them unless you become a seed, unless you go into the ground and die. And he did. He became voluntarily weak for us. He became a seed that goes into the ground and dies. But that, that, that is the secret of the gospel's power because the power of the word is the weakness of the Lord. When you see him doing that for you, if you see him doing that for you, if you see the beauty of his weakness, that comes into your life and that's the power that will change you. That will change you. It, the, weak, the weakness of the Lord is the power of the word. And nothing else will change you like that. Nothing else will change you like seeing the beauty of his weakness for you. The, his willingness to be the ultimate seed. For example, go back quick to Peter and Paul. Paul talks to Peter and he says to Peter what? He could have said, Peter, stop being a racist or God will get you. Now, as we said a minute ago, where does racism come from? It comes from a fear in the heart that needs to bolster the self-image. So we have to look down on people. It comes from a fear, an insecurity. But if, 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 if and this is the way we all try to change ourselves. This is the way we try to change ourselves. This is the way we try to change other people. It's the way we try to change our children. If Paul comes to Peter and says, Peter, you better stop being a racist or God's going to get you. So what is he doing? Is he dealing with that fear? Is he getting rid of that fear? He's stirring it up, and he's just jury-rigging. He says, no, I want the fear to serve me. I want you to be afraid of my peer group. We're going to be ashamed of you. We're going to get mad at you. You're not going to be an apostle anymore. And next thing you know, Peter will adopt enlightened views of race out of fear, out of pride, out of a desire to fit in. And the fear that's at his heart that's driving him has not been changed. It's just been restrained. It's just been rearranged. But that's not what Paul does. What he says to Peter is, Peter, you're not living in line with the gospel. Think of what Jesus did for you. He was excluded for you. He was crucified outside the gate for you. How can you exclude anybody? He loves you. Why do you need to bolster your self-image? Take the beauty of his weakness into your life, and that's a power that will change you. And it will. It will change you. Take the beauty of what Jesus Christ has done. Be happy enough not to be a racist anymore. Let it capture your imagination. Let it control your heart. Let it be the controlling reality, Peter. And it does. That's how it works. You take it in, you take it in, you take it in. But it's the weakness of the Lord that's the power of the word. And it actually changes you from the inside out. It changes your motivation. It changes your identity. It changes the very inside your structure. So it's organic growth, not mechanical growth. You see, some years ago I was on vacation. And I went into McDonald's to buy lunch. Now, nobody goes to McDonald's. For the food, you go for the speed. But I was taking... After 20 minutes, I was still in line. Totally frustrates the whole reason to go to McDonald's. And the reason I was still in line was because there was a a woman at the cash register, and she was screwing absolutely everything up. She was constantly getting the the order wrong, and the person, I didn't order that, I ordered that, then she had a reorder, and I was just looking at my watch, and I was saying, this is ridiculous, and I'm on my vacation, and here I'm doing all this. And as I got a little closer, I found I was really mad at her. When I got a little closer, I realized why. Her English wasn't good enough for her to understand what people were saying. And then I really got, I said, oh my gosh, and I was really mad. I said, what, why don't they do screening here? You know, why don't they, uh, what, what's the matter with McDonald's? What's the matter with their, their model here in which they screen employees? And I said, and God, what is she doing here in this society if she doesn't even know how to speak English? And then I started, on top 
of feeling mad at her, guilty for my xenophobia. Oh my gosh, you know, here I am, a New York City minister, a Christian minister, here I am xenophobic about immigrant people. So you see, (laughs) on top of my anger toward her, I layered guilt toward me. That really helped. But then, even though I didn't have St. Paul at my elbow, something happened I will never forget. I had just that morning been studying in Exodus, and there is a verse in Exodus that I had underlined and I'd thought about, and it's a verse that says, Be kind to the alien and the immigrant, for you were aliens in Egypt, but I brought you out. All of a sudden, the word went right to my heart like an arrow, and I thought about it. The first clause all by itself would just be mechanical. The first clause was be kind to the alien and the immigrant because God says so. And if that's all it was, I would have just, that wouldn't have helped my anger. It wouldn't have helped my guilt. I would have just felt more angry and more guilty. But it's the second clause that said, for you were aliens. You were alienated from me. You were a foreigner from me, but I brought you out. And you know how they brought, God brought us out? He became an alien. He became crucified outside the gate. So God says, I did that for you. I became an alien for you. I was cast out so that you could be brought in. I was thrown out of the city so you could become a a member of the family of God. So remember that when you see people who are aliens and immigrants. And by the time I got actually up to the counter, I was ready to kiss her. (laughs) Why? Because I'm a virtuous and enlightened New Yorker? Because, of course, you know, I have enlightened views of race and immigration. It was the power of the seed. It was the power of the seed, and the power of the seed is the weakness of the Lord. His weakness for me changes me at the, at the very root. It makes me want, not half, to embrace people who are different than me. That's why you have that John Newton hymn, Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined apart no more. To see the law by love fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. Listen, this passage ends on a note of triumph because even though three out of the four soils resist the power of the word, the last one, 30, 60, 100-fold, that's supernatural. Conventional agriculture, even today's agriculture, can't produce that kind of that kind of uh, yield. Why? Because Jesus is saying it's supernatural. If you do let it in, it's supernatural. And another way to put it is this. I don't care what kind of marble slab is over your heart. I don't care what kind of addiction. I don't care what kind of fear. I don't care what kind of alienation. I don't care what kind of absolutely loathsome self-image. I don't care what anybody's ever done to you. I don't care how messed up you are on the inside. You bring this in It has got the power to crack and roll that stone slab off of you, that marble slab. Crack it. Roll it off. And the secret of the power of the word is the weakness of the Lord. Weakness for you. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us to uh, see the secret of change. The secret of change is mastering the gospel. But it's taking it in deep, working it in over the years, getting it to the very roots of our lives. But most of all, it's seeing that the power of the word is the weakness of the Lord for us. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the sweetness of it, the beauty of it. And we ask that you would help us not just 
restrain and rearrange the fear in our lives to make us more moral, but to utterly change ourselves at the root or let you change us at the root through the gospel of grace. What a power. What sweetness, what weakness, what strength. We thank you that your son is the ultimate seed and he gives us the seed of the word. Help us to accept it so that it bears incredible fruit in our lives and the lives of the people around us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.